My guess is that somewhere along the line in your life, you've heard the phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, the words will never hurt me. It seems like a wise saying, right? Yet so much of our lives are filled with the opposite experience. The phrase more appropriately probably goes like this, sticks and stones may break my bones and words normally hurt me. In our immediate context, we might not face literal sticks and stones from people, but we likely face literal words that often hurt. Hurtful words by faceless usernames online. Hurtful words by coworkers. Hurtful words by customers. Hurtful words by another kid. Hurtful words by loved ones. And if we're honest, this is more normative than we'd probably like to admit. It's so normative to us that we encounter it all around us all of the time. Entertainment is filled with harmful words expressed in movies and TV shows. Songs are filled with harmful words and ideas. Radio and podcast personalities hurl harmful words at holders of the opposite view. Politicians and leaders hurl harmful words at each other. I mean, campaigns are built upon the use of harmful and slanderous words directed at another's opponent. The use of harmful words is very normal to our experience of life. They appear almost to be the wisdom of our day. The wisdom that if you just tear down another person, that's what's best. That's actually what's wise. The wisdom that fullness of life is attained by tearing down another in order to elevate ourself above another. The wisdom that tearing down another is the way that things get done. Today we're continuing to work our way through a series of messages on the Bible book of James. Today we're looking at James chapter 3 as I mentioned earlier and James 3 references the connection between wisdom and the words that we use. While our experience may lead us to believe that tearing down others with our words is the wise way to get things done, God's word reveals a very different reality. In James 3, God's word reveals that wisdom and words are indeed connected. But they are connected in a very different way than the way we use them and in our experience in the world. In James 3, God reveals that humble words are wise words. Humble words are wise words. The wisdom of God that is revealed in Jesus is that life in the posture of the humility of Jesus is where fullness of life is had. Using words in the posture of humility is the way things get done in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of heaven. Would you join me in looking at James chapter 3 as we see what James says in this chapter? Starting in the first verse, not many of you should become teachers my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal, or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder, wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. 
All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing, my brothers and sisters. This should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Would you join me in prayer as we continue? Father God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your goodness when we are anything but that. We fail and falter, and we are imperfect. We recognize that. Fathers, we reflect on the words that you have given us through James' writing. We ask that you, your spirit would speak to our heart, that you would look at the situation in our life. We ask that you would take the words that we just heard and translate them from not just words on a page, but to the everyday details of our life. That we would truly see the power of your word and the transformation you want to bring about us. Father, lead us and guide us as we reflect on this passage this morning. It's by the power of your spirit, through your son Jesus, that we pray this. Amen. Who is an influencer that you follow? This week, I asked some of you to tell me about an influencer that you follow that I might not be aware of. And one person told me about a guy named Mr. Beast on YouTube. Another told me about a girl named Emma Chamberlain, who's another YouTube personality. And my guess is we could start listing person after person here, because there's a lot of influencers online. Before 2007, when the iPhone came about first, if someone wanted to influence a large number of people, it wasn't so easy, was it? If a person wanted to influence a large group of people, they had to rise to prominence on a platform of notoriety. Often that would have been like a political platform, or maybe they had to be the CEO of a big business, or they had to become a radio or TV personality because that's the only way that a message got broadcast to a large audience. But now, with the advent of smartphones and social media, the bar has been significantly lowered for any person to become an influencer. In the time when James is writing this letter that eventually becomes part of the Bible that we read and that we hear, if a person wanted to be in a position of power or prestige or influence, there were very few opportunities in that day. For example, one would have to be something like the ruler of a nation or a military leader or in a higher class of society where someone would actually pay attention to what you had to say or if you could be a teacher, someone who could lead others. Yet when the church of Jesus emerges, there is now this social group that is not based on hierarchy, but on recognition of the dignity, value, and purpose of all people. 
the church entered into reality, a new playing field, if you will, where all people were kind of on the same level. The Church of Jesus was a new raw arena that gave people of all classes a platform to be able to influence others if they stepped into it. It created new roles of influence that didn't exist before because this new social group had leaders and teachers and all these different roles that, no, that didn't exist before. And we can see the parallel to our own day with when a smartphone and social media came to rise and now everybody has a place they can step into if they want to. This was the same situation in James' day. The church was, people are looking at the church going, huh, if I want to be an influencer, I, I can easily step in and just be a teacher here because I don't have to be a ruler, I don't have to be a military leader, I don't have to be in a high social class, I can just become part of the church and say, hey, I want to teach. And now I can influence all the people that I want. It's in this context that James begins chapter 3 with a caution to believers in Jesus about aspiring to teaching roles within the church body. The caution or warning that James gives is that those who teach within the church body are subject to stricter judgment by God. The warning is for the church body to have discretion in who is given a platform as teacher within the church. Discretion is needed because this new opportunity could be usurped by people with envious or selfish ambitions. See verse 13 of chapter 3. The new platform could easily become the space where harmful and unwise teaching is allowed to disseminate, causing all kinds of destruction in its wake. In the wisdom of the world, gaining any platform to influence others would be considered good. And James is not necessarily debating the benefit of the goodness of being an influencer. I don't think that's really what he's getting at here. But he does go on to critique the driving force behind the kind of influence that a person desires. Like, what's driving you to want to influence others? I think that's more of what he's getting at. In verses 13 through 15, James unveils the driving force behind the world's form of influence. It's influence toward the end of envy and selfish ambition or boastfulness or deceit. Such wisdom is no wisdom at all. Rather, James calls it demonic. It's evil, as he describes in verse 16. At first glance, you might be thinking, well, this warning is good and all, but I can easily follow that. I'm not a teacher within the church. Okay, what's next? What's, what, this chapter apparently doesn't apply to me. Well, not so quick. While the warning is to those who fill a teaching role within the church, those who teach are also helping to lead the church. They are leading you who are a part of the church body in how to understand Jesus and God's word and what is expected of you as a follower of Jesus. What a teacher says will impact how you learn to follow Jesus' way of living. You will be influenced to speak how the teacher speaks, to act how the teacher acts. The teacher will set the example for how you understand what a follower of Jesus does. So yes, this does still apply to all of us, even if we don't teach. But it's also important for any church member to be able to discern if a teacher is teaching poor information or bad information. It's important to be able to discern if someone is teaching out of selfish ambition or envy or boastfulness or deceit. Or else you too will be following a wayward way from what God has for you. Also, this warning is important because you also may one day be a teacher within the body of Christ. You might not be right now, but that may be the case down the road. It's also important because you may not be a teacher within the corporate body of Christ. 
But you are a teacher within the most local body of Christ that you are part of. Your family. So that's you, dads. That's you, moms. I'm in the midst of learning to parent toddlers. And if any of you have been there before, you can go ahead and laugh because you know all that that comes with. I mean, it's a crazy job, right? And part of that job is teaching my kids about how to navigate life. My oldest kid right now is five years old, so he is exploring his independence for sure. But many of my instructions have to be more black and white with him because that's where he is on a maturity level, right? Like, go get your pajamas on, clean up the Legos, or I might even give him like an option, but it's clear-cut options, right? Do you want to do this game or this activity? And he can pick, but it's, it's pretty black and white. In terms of judging if my son is following what he is taught, that evaluation is based on what he knows and if he executes the task. Did he get his pajamas on? Did he pick up the Legos? Which option is he picking? Pretty simple things. But he would not be judged on whether putting pajamas on is a good thing or a bad thing. Or if cleaning up Legos should or shouldn't be done in this particular moment. Or if the activity that he picks is safe or not. Those aren't the kind of decisions that he's making. But me, as his father and teacher, I am judged on if my directives to him are good or not. Or if he should or shouldn't be doing that right now. Or if this is safe or if it isn't safe. I am judged for those things and he is not because I am leading him. I am the teacher. And as the teacher, the execution of my task is given greater scrutiny. Because if I mess up in giving Pace good guidance... It will have a disastrous result, not only for him, but for me, and likely for other people as well. This is how I understand the greater judgment that James is referencing to teachers in James chapter 3, verse 1. A teacher's work is more scrutinized because his or her work impacts more than just him or herself. It impacts everyone that he or she is teaching. Jesus makes a similar remark when he said in Luke 12:48, "From the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked of that person." A student is only entrusted with the information that they are given. A teacher is entrusted with a wider breadth of information. So more will be asked of the teacher. So James says that teachers will be judged more strictly with more scrutiny. My guess is that somewhere along the line you have watched or at least know about the singing talent show American Idol and somehow that has been airing for 22 seasons. I don't know how that's possible, but it has. And one of the attractions of that show has been its audition process and the train wreck that some of the performances can often turn out to be and specifically the judges' responses to them. Just like a singer is going to be judged or scrutinized on his or her ability to sing, so also James notes that a teacher will be judged or scrutinized on the words that they use. Because words are the tool of the trade for teachers. It's near impossible to teach without using words. And words, whether spoken, written, or signed, Language in general is necessary for each of us to navigate the world in which we live. Words are necessary for how we interact with each other. They are necessary for how we make sense of reality. It's no surprise then that God communicates himself to us through his son, Jesus. And then the Apostle John, when he writes his gospel, describes Jesus as the word of God. 
Beyond Jesus, it's the written and spoken word of the good news of Jesus that has further communicated God's character to us of who Jesus is and who God is. The scriptures, the written word, is how we have come to encounter God in and through Jesus. So yes, words truly are important. And it's to this end that the middle portion of James 3 focuses on the power of words and the tongue that speaks them. James offers a variety of examples to illustrate the power of the word that comes from a person. I mean, we we wield great power. This is what James is getting at here. He mostly focuses on the tongue and how such a small part of the body can wield such influence beyond the words that are spoken with it. He talks about how a ship can be steered by such a small rudder, how a horse can be, a, a giant you know, animal can be controlled by just a small bit in its mouth, how just a tiny spark can light a, a forest on fire. In the 21st century, we can maybe update this to include how just 10 small fingers and a handheld keyboard can wield such influence, or how one social media post can wield such influence. It may not seem like much, but those little tiny things that we express into reality have major ripple effects into the world. It's not hard to tell by James' description that he is describing the tongue and the power of words in a negative light. That the use of the tongue and the words that are spoken can have very destructive consequences. For in verse 6, he describes the tongue as a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. I mean, just think about speaking right now and think about that's how he's describing the tongue that's in your mouth right now. That it's like one of the most evil parts of your body and that it itself is set on fire by hell. It makes you not want to open your mouth at all, doesn't it? Just with that description alone. And we might be thinking, well, he's being extreme in this assessment. But if we view his words in verse 6 within the broader story of Scripture, I think his logic makes a lot of sense. If we look back to the creation account in Genesis chapters 1 through 3, the divide between humanity and God takes place when humans twist and distort the word of God. When Adam and Eve believed the lie, the twisting of words, that they won't surely die, if they eat the fruit that God warned them not to eat. The tongue and belief in the words that were spoken by the serpent are what has sent humanity into a history-long tailspin. Because those words have led to the separation of humanity from life with God. And we've been wrestling with distorted and twisted words ever since. So James is spot on, I think, when he connects the tongue as evil and being set on fire by hell. For it's the deception of the deceiver, first encountered as the serpent in the garden, the deceiver, the one destined for hell, which is eternal separation from God. So back to our phrase that we started with, sticks and stones. Sticks and stones may break our bones, but words will never hurt me. We could probably also update this phrase to say something like this. Sticks and stones may break our bones, but words will always impact our hearts. Words impact our hearts because we process words internally. James makes this connection in verses 14 through 15. James connects the use of words to the wisdom that directs the use of the tongue. Is worldly wisdom directing the words that you use? Or is heavenly wisdom directing the words that you use? 
In verse 14, James is describing a similar phenomenon to what Jesus says in Luke 6, verse 45, where Jesus says, A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. The words that we speak come from what our heart is full of. And if we again look back to the Garden of Eden, we see that the twisting and distorting of words is what led to envy and selfish ambition in Adam and Eve's heart. The lie that Adam and Eve believed, that they wanted to be like God, they wanted what God had that they didn't have. Adam and Eve functioned according to worldly, ungodly wisdom in that moment. And that wisdom is what dictated how they acted and also how they spoke going forward. When God confronts them about eating the fruit, they didn't confess. They didn't confess with their mouth their wrongdoing. Instead, they blamed another. Envy and selfish ambition was coming up out of their heart. And as James 3 verse 16 notes, envy and selfish ambition is where we find disorder and every evil practice. Envy and selfish ambition was bubbling up from Adam and Eve's hearts and coming out of their mouths in evil ways, just like Jesus describes in Luke 6, verse 45. And the spark of their words set a blazing fire that is still lit in our day. If you've ever watched uh, one of the many survival shows where people are kind of out in the wilderness and they have to figure out how to get back or survive for so long, something like that, you know that clean water is very important to that situation. That can make or break if you're able to survive. On the survival shows, they are often faced with finding a good source of drinking water. And often the closest and easiest source of water is stagnant, dirty, disease-infected water. So if they were to drink it, it's like all sorts of other bad things are going to happen. But in order to get good drinking water, they need to find a different source. They usually end up finding a stream of running water coming down from a mountain or some higher elevation where it has had the opportunity to purify any dirt and diseases that might be in the water. It may seem from the words of James 3 that we are without hope of being able to speak or to use words in any good or life-giving ways. The overwhelming feeling we get from the message of James 3 is, I better just keep my mouth shut. In fact, a proverb in the pre-Jesus portion of the Bible in the Old Testament says something similar to that. Proverbs 10.19 says, Sin is not ended by multiplying words, but the prudent hold their tongues. I've memorized this verse over the last couple years, and the New Living Translation puts it this way. Too much talk leads to sin. Be sensible and keep your mouth shut. So it is wise... But it also doesn't fully solve what James is talking about. Because we need to talk in order to just live life. So how can we do so in a way that isn't destructive every time that we open our mouths? James 3 verses 11 through 12 gives us a hint. James describes how the source of one's life matters. He notes, can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? Can a fig tree, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Fresh water can't come from a salty source of water, and neither can an olive come from a fig tree. That's just not how it works. It needs a different source. The source matters. So too, the source of wisdom, the source of the words that we encounter, matter. Are the words that you encounter, are the words that you speak, 
coming from the world's wisdom or from heavenly wisdom? In James 3 verse 2, James speaks of how a perfect person is able to teach and to speak without fault. And James outright admits that this isn't talking about us because he says we all stumble, we all fail. So he's not talking about us who are perfect. So who is he talking about that can be perfect? It's Jesus. Hebrews 4.15 describes Jesus as having been tempted in all ways that we experience, but never sinning, never faltering, never stumbling. Jesus is the only perfect one. He is the only one who is able to teach and speak without a heart of evil. To use James' early, earlier analogy, Jesus is the source of heavenly wisdom that we can turn to, who then enables us to teach and speak with as little fault as possible, with as little destruction as possible. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 24 identifies Jesus as the wisdom of God. If you want to see what the wisdom of God looks like, look at Jesus. Paul says, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Jesus is the wisdom that comes from heaven that James mentions in verse 17. It's only through the wisdom of Jesus that pure, peace, loving, considerate, submissive, merciful, and impartial speech can come. And we could actually describe all of these characteristics under one general characteristic of humility. And James notes this in verse 13. We become wise like Jesus when we act and speak in the posture of humility. In order to teach and speak wisely, we need to walk and speak in the humble posture that Jesus' life exemplifies. In Jesus, we see that humble words are wise words. Humble words are wise words. The wisdom of the world is to speak in the posture of envy and selfish ambition. We see this day in and day out. We experience this day in and day out. But the wisdom of Jesus is to speak in the posture of humility, which leads to the peace and fullness of life that we desire. Humble words truly are wise words. If you're here this morning and you've never decided to follow Jesus, I invite you to pull me or one of our church leaders aside or message us. You can do that at clarencecc.org if that's easier for you. But I encourage you to meet and discuss with us what the Bible has to say further about beginning to follow Jesus. About what the Bible says about expressing your faith at immersion, at baptism, and uniting yourself to him, which is one step, the beginning step of humbling yourself under Jesus to be humble as he is humble. But if you're here today and you have already decided to follow Jesus, I invite you to re-posture yourself behind Jesus. We're constantly being tempted to speak according to the posture of the world, out of a posture of selfishness or, self or envy or selfish ambition. My guess is that you have repostured yourself before, and you may have done that for 10,000 times before that, but I invite you to do that once again. Reposture yourself behind Jesus to observe and to learn from him how to speak in a posture of humility, to be able to teach and speak wisely, to be able to teach and speak in the humble posture of him. Humble words are wise words. Humble words are wise words. Would you join me in prayer as we close? Father God, thank you for your son Jesus. 
Thank you that he came to live among us, that his life is an example for us of what your heavenly life is like, the life that we desire, the fullness of life that we long for. It looks like the life of Jesus. Father, we admit that we fall short of that. We go astray from that. Help us to reposture ourselves, or to maybe for the first time posture ourselves behind you to learn your way of living and allow you to transform us out of our enviness and selfish ambition into the life-giving ways in which you want us to live. It's by the power of your spirit, through your son Jesus, that we pray this. Amen.